We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. In the 10 years I've been doing American Warrior Radio, one of the most surprising conversations I had with was British actor Matthew Marsden. We were doing an interview from the parking lot of a Cracker Barrel in Texas. Of course, Matthew starred in uh, the movie Black Hawk Down, but he was talking about Army Rangers, and literally this conversation changed his life. And in the interview, this fellow with a British accent was talking about how America really was the last and brightest shining beacon of freedom and liberty on the planet. And to hear someone with a British accent saying this really raised my eyebrows, and I I was grateful for it. Having been raised overseas myself and and traveling to numerous countries in my life, including China, I've learned to really appreciate how special our country is. The glory and the promise of our American experiment has never been lost on me. So when I was approached about a story that follows in that vein, I jumped at the chance. Our guest today came to America as a political refugee, barely able to speak English, but nothing with a bag of clothes and 10 cents in his pocket. He took advantage of every opportunity offered and sometimes created new ones. He rose to the ranks of the world's greatest fighting force. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to American Warrior Radio, Mr. Drago Jaron. Thank you, Ben. It's an honor to be on your radio show. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I just got done reading your book, The Pledge to America, Drago, which was released in June, and it's a wonderful read. And, of course, Drago, we get a lot of publishers that send us their author's books and want to have them on the show. But what I really appreciate about your book was even though you share some stories of your times in the SEAL teams, it's not a Navy SEAL book, and I'm guessing you did that on purpose. Yes, absolutely. That was not never intended to be a seal book. So as you could read, there's just only a small part of the book. I think maybe like three or four chapters where I talk about seal teams, but all 15 of them or 16 chapters are about uh, me coming to America, me living in, before coming to America, uh, living in an oppressive socialist communist system. I would say socialist system run by communists, hardcore communists like my father. But I would like to make a a statement here because this is very important for me and it is very close to my heart. Please remember that my chance to live as a free man is only possible because of these ideals for which the founding fathers of America fought for and that have been carried forward to this day by Americans. It's important for me. I would like to say thank you to all Americans for my freedom. I know they're going to be inspired by your story today, Drago. It is an inspirational story, but it's also very much a cautionary tale. You mentioned you you were born and grew up in Poland. Uh, You were born in 1960. It was still a communist regime at that time. And what's interesting about your story, Drago, I found was the dynamic in your family between your father, who was a card-carrying communist party member, and your mother and your grandmother, who were staunchly anti-communism, anti-socialism. Yes, they were more Christians than anti-communists. They just wanted to live in peace. But, of course, under a communist socialist system, it is almost never possible. 
And another point I would like to make, uh, because we always refer to these countries behind Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe as communist countries. Well, in fact, none of these countries, including Soviet Union, were ever communist state. They were all socialist countries run by communists like my father, like other bad people. So that was the dynamics in my family eventually led to divorce and my father went his way as a, like you say, card-carrying communist. And uh, me and my mom and my siblings stay with our uh, faith and and with our uh, moral values. And of course, this is very important because faith and family is extremely important, especially in hard times, whether it is socialism or not, if uh, it is important for family. And it is also important not to compromise on moral values. And these values need to be anchored in something that is immutable in faith for me. Because there is another danger which here people in America are not very familiar with. Your morality is not anchored within something solid. If your morality is anchored to a politician or ideology, we know that those change. This is how in Germany in 1920s and 30s, a politician like Adolf Hitler was able to sway, persuade people to accept moral values that are not compatible with humanity. But they did accept it. They follow Hitler to the, the to, to the ruins. Are you talking about relative morality, Drago? Yes, I'm talking okay. about the relative morality. This is what my mom always told. We must never subscribe to relative morality. Where, like I just described it, you have to, your morality has to be anchored in faith, in family, and good moral values. So, yes, that's exactly. I just lost that word. There's, I mean, several, and I'm, I use the word cautionary tale. There's several examples in your book that I go when you were growing up of just how how bad it was there and how people always had to be looking over their shoulder and how much control over people's lives that the central party had. And one of which, in fact, after your father left your mother, and of course now here's a single woman trying to raise a family, which was obviously very difficult. She decided to move back to, is it pronounced Lodz? Lodz. Lodz, okay. Uh, We were living in the western part of Poland, the small city, Zielona Góra. And yeah, so we had to move out because we, my mom did not have any support there. She went, she followed my father in his, in his quest for his career as a communist. And then when she was left, basically we were there on our own and uh, we had to move back. But that was another ordeal just to move from one city to another because of the socialist system. Well, and that's what people need to need to hear, particularly young people in America now. You had to get permission. Your mother had to get permission to move from one city to another, and someone had to sign off on that, that housing trade. And that is just such a foreign thing to many of us in the world, particularly here in America, but it was that bad. Yes, it was that bad. In socialist Poland, government controlled everything. I mean, they had to do it to survive because otherwise people would just eat them alive. People in Poland did not want to do anything with socialism. Uh, And uh, yeah, so my mom had to request permission from government to move to another city. Now, there is a catch-22 because you cannot move 
to another, even if governments say, okay, but the regulation says you cannot move to another city if you don't have a job there. But then you cannot get the job there if you don't live in that city. So it was almost impossible. I don't know how my mom did, but eventually we were able to trade uh, two rooms. So it means like one bedroom apartment for a little tiny studio in a, uh, in a city lot. So my mom and we could be closer to our family. So it was a little tiny studio without the kitchen. The kitchen was just part of the the room, and it was four of us. So my mom, my youngest sister, and my younger brother uh, living in just one uh, this one room. Quite a long time. I, I tell you what, when we come back, I want to follow up more on that point, uh, Drago, because I think, again, Americans need to hear that, and we'll, we'll talk about your, your transition story, if you will, uh, coming to the United States. I tell you, one of the things that really... And I love their book. I read it cover to cover. And it, it, things that jumped out at me, for example, there was the misinformation campaigns that they were running there. And one, you know, there's always food shortages there. And the government was saying, well, the reason there's food shortages is because the polls are making so much money that they're going out and buying everything off the shelves and the stores can't keep up. And that's why there's food shortages, not not the reality of it. So a uh, little bit of craziness there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Drago Geron about his new book, The Pledge to America. Just a great story. More of that coming up. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. You can also find us on your favorite streaming platform, whatever that might be. Again, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We'll be right back with more. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Drago Geron. He's got a great book out called The Place to America. It's released in June. Drago, we're talking just about the hardship that, that people, particularly in America, if they don't read history, if they're not informed, they wouldn't even understand You know, food shortages. You, you tell stories about how in the winter your mother would actually stuff your clothing with, with crumpled up newspapers just to keep you warm, and that was an embarrassment for her. But that's just the practical reality of what she had to do for your family to survive. Yes. You know, in Poland at the time, under communist rule, people still want to look nice. You know, even if I remember, even if somebody was going to throw the trash away, put the trash out, they were they were, they were really good clothes. They didn't want to look bad. So for my mom now, there was also another element to it. Because my mom didn't want to be accused that she doesn't care for us and we just stuff our clothes with newspapers. But that was the reality. The winters in Poland are harsh, were very cold. And we as a kid, we just did not have en- enough money to buy clothes. So my mom uh, remediated it with just newspapers at work. But uh, please remember that at the same time when we were going hungry and without proper clothing, the propaganda was saying how great the socialism is in Poland, how great that socialist Poland is. We have every that, that we have supposedly had everything. There is nothing wrong with the economy, and people are just basically starving. 
So this is how perverted that fake news media controlled by government were, and the censorship was incredibly harsh. So you couldn't say if you could, if you say something wrong, like if you complain about fraudulent elections, because that this is the only way the socialists could stay at power in Poland. You could go to prison, or in 1950s and 60s, you could actually be murdered by government. So that's how perverted it could be. But when I came to America, all the planes leveled out. I was in, not in any more disadvantage than any other poor kid in America. That's what is beautiful about America. From then on, it was up to me what I will make out of my life, not up to the government like my father. So this is bad up there, but I just want to still steer us to the good side of America, how great America is, because that's the intention of my book. Like I said earlier, the reason I wrote this book is because I want people to use it as a prism, as a lens, to actually see the exceptionalism of America, American ideals, American citizens, Americans. It fundamentally transformed me when I came to America. I am better a person here living in America, and I call myself American. I am not something hyphen American. Mm. I am just American, and I'm so proud of it. Outstanding. Uh, Drago, I'm not quite done with you because there are some other formative things that took place in your childhood there in Poland, one of which you had to become or, or did become a, a fighter pretty early on. And one of the things, that, I'm sure the statute of limitations has expired on this, Drago, but you, you even <laughs> took to uh, threatening or enforcing on some of the party kids who would come to school with lots of delicious sandwiches when you guys had none. And so you basically started a little racket they had to bring two sandwiches so that you and some of the other poor kids could eat too i love that yes actually it may sound comical but it was for me necessity because i was hungry my mom sometimes when she uh, she had to stay in line 3 30 in the morning to buy bread you could not buy bread and just keep it for a week or so that you could nobody could sell you that much bread so if she didn't make it to the end of the line when the bread was still there, we didn't eat. Mm. And uh, so I figured out that uh, And when my mom was making me sandwiches to school, basically it was sandwich uh, with a little bit of tea poured on it and sprinkled with sugar. Well, tea, if you had a tea, but if we didn't, it was just a little bit of water to moist it and put the sugar on it. That was the most of the time. And I, when I seen these kids, and I tried to I learned and recognize very quickly that these rich kids with awesome sandwiches with ham, with cheese, a salad, and all the mayonnaise, everything on it, they were party members' kids. So one day I just lost it, and I went and I stored the sandwich from one of these guys. I just, this kid, I, just woke, I woke up to him. Uh, I think we were around maybe eight or nine years old at that time. And I told him. I just took the sandwich from him. I, I bet it, and then I just fell in love with the sandwich. So I told him, you bring two sandwiches tomorrow. If you don't, I will be eating your sandwich, but you will not be eating anything. <laughs> so it, it worked, but then I noticed two other kids quietly in the corners just nipping off their piece of bread, just like mine, with nothing on it. 
So then I started realizing everybody says that we are living in such a great socialist system, socialist country, but people are starving. So I've seen quite a few of these rich sons or the children of Communist Party members. So I just approached them and I told them they were going to bring, each one of them will bring two sandwiches and they're going to hand them to this, to this, and to this kid. Basically, I became like a Robin Hood mm-hmm. <laughs> in the class. You know, if my mom would find out about it, I would be severely punished. So I tried to keep it still quiet because my mom would not tolerate this thing. But at that time, you know, I was a kid and I, I was just, I was hungry and I figured out it was one way to feed myself. Although like my brother found different ways. He learned, my brother learned how to make uh, uh, French fries from the potatoes and sometimes he just cook it for himself and uh, whoever wanted to eat, my sister found her own way. But... I was the, the oldest one, and I was the strongest one, so I could afford, and I could, and, and I knew how to extort these sandwiches. So again, I'm not proud of it today, and this is it would never happen in today's Poland. Poland is free today, but at that time there was the way, to, one of the ways to to leave. So yes, I was I was extorting sandwiches from uh, Communist Party members' children. You had to, you did what you had to do, Drago. How long? How old were you when you first started to be cognizant of the cause of all these problems? Was the failed socialist system and and some of the the communist leaders? Eleven or twelve years old when the secret state police was called on me to school and they uh, detained my mother and brought her to school too. But you know, I, I, this is kind of interesting story, but. Uh, I, I can come back to it after the break. Okay, let's do that. And I, I know there was, in fact, a, a short story. It reminded me of your book. I was on a trade mission to, to Beijing, Drago, several years ago, and I was a much younger man. And our first stop was the U.S. Embassy, and we were told, okay, just assume your hotel room is bugged. Assume someone is always watching. And each of us was assigned someone who supposedly was a member of the Beijing Chamber of Commerce, but they were basically just party members sent there to you know keep an eye on us and watch us. But the interesting thing was when we're all together, they all parroted the party line. But I got a chance to be out alone looking for cigars of all things with my escort. And then he started to tell me about this little side hustle he had going on over here and just just amazing entrepreneurship that I thought, wow, you know, we've got more in common than not. But then I realized after a number of years, they had to do that. They had to do that to survive. So let's talk more about that when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Bueller Garcia, talking with Drago Jaron. We'll be right back. This is Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Drago Jaron. He's got a new book out called The Pledge to America. It was released in June. I highly recommend it. So often Americans, we see these things in movies, and we think it's all fantasy, but your family is actually getting visited by the secret police. Yes, but it's nothing unusual. Things like that happen quite often in socialist Poland, right, by communists. So in my case, it was when I was a fifth grade of elementary school, at that time, everybody in fifth grade had to start learning Russian language. If you did not pass the test in, a, in Russian language, then you couldn't advance to another class. 
And I remember it, it was nothing political at that time. I was just upset. I had problems. I was not the best student, so I had a problem with Polish language at the time. And now that the Russian language was thrown on us, which most of Poles perceived as a as a language of occupiers. So I just piped up to the teacher, why do we have to learn the Russian language where there are so many people who don't speak Polish properly? And I was not prepared what's going to happen. So the teacher woke up, pulled me by my ear, marched me to principal's office, explained what happened, what I said. Principal called police, and I was told to sit there maybe like in 40 minutes. An hour later, police showed up, but it was not just regular police. There was also state security police with my mom. And my mom was interrogated, how come that I have such an attitude to the Russian language, to Russia, and I have such attitude, definitely I must not like socialism. And uh, she was warned that they told her the next time there won't be any warning, we will be moved to orphanage and the government will, will educate us the proper way. But she was told that she must instill more love to socialism in me and my siblings. You know, of course, my mom was petrified. She cried. She was uh, very upset. And um, I just got angry. Uh, but I was scared, too, because I never had that experience before. And then I find out that that was very, not a very unique experience. That's quite few families survived it. There were a few children that did go to orphanage because parents refused to compromise their moral values and compromise to go along with socialist ideology. Drago, I, I don't want to give away the whole book, So, but one thing I found very interesting is you would continue to, to be, I'll use the word a rebel, uh, revolutionary maybe is a better word uh, in this context, but tell us a little bit real quick about your uncle. He seemed to be a pretty inspirational character in your eventual uh, situation. Yes. Well, my mother and my uncle, they were role models for me. And what happened, this is how I actually got interested in not so much maybe politics, but history of Poland and, and the, the changes that, that happened after the Second World War. What happened to my uncle is he had his own business, and he was producing brakes. He was making brakes and cedar blocks. But he was very hard worker, and he was so successful at it that people stopped buying in other places, mostly, of course, run by communists or somebody or people connected to Communist Party. So they complained that they are losing business because my uncle is taking everything. So the socialist state sent first warning to my uncle that he needs to slow down his production and, and maybe scale down with the quality of it as well. <laughs> Uh, my uncle, of course, could not. He said, I, I can't afford it. You know, here, if you have business and successful, you can live fairly decent life. In a socialist state, you had to struggle every day, whether you had a business or not, because government controlled everything. And he told them, no, he's not going to do it. So they sent groups of young people. They called themselves uh, anti-fascist and anti-Nazis. They very quickly branded my uncle as a Nazi and fascist because he had a business, and supposedly he was rich. That is how they tra divide the society, rich and poor, and, and if you are not poor, then you have to be extremely rich, which is, of course, not true. So they, when they, they, they destroyed his machines and told him to slow down. 
or he, he didn't, he rebuilt the machines and continue his business. So they came back again, and this time they destroyed his machine, machines and beat him up. And uh, that did not work. So um, they, they, they did it third time. And this is where my uncle just ran out of resources to rebuild his business, but he went to police, complained. So he was arrested. He was beaten up and thrown out of the street to walk home. So that's how the socialism country controls the society and, and, and businesses, too. So up there, you could have your own business, but you really didn't own it because the government can anytime can come in. They can cut off your resources. They can destroy your machines, or they can send the groups of these young people on uh, on, on businesses so, uh, and on the citizens who don't comply with socialist uh, ideas. Uh, Drago, let's talk about what brought you to the United States. You yourself were eventually arrested and spent quite a bit of time in prison, and, and eventually you were released. So you were in effect a, a political prisoner. And in 1983, you decided to request political political asylum, and eventually you, that was granted. And, and you describe how you're, you're 23 years old, you've got a duffel bag full of clothes and $25 when you got on the plane. And then when you landed in the U.S., you still had that duffel bag of clothes, but you're down to about 10 cents. But sure. you, you were embraced very quickly by some members of the church and, and other Americans who immediately jumped in and and came to your aid and, and got you your new start. Yes, and this is something that is so unique about America. See, America was built on, on, on patriotism, on personal freedom. So th this is something that is, I was not prepared for. When I landed, I was uh, surrounded by fellow Americans. I was helped with the apartment, with the job, with, uh, I mean, people were bringing me food uh, when I couldn't buy, buy it. But they were bringing me clothes because my clothes was not quite up to, uh, to standard. And uh, I will never forget that. I would never uh, be who I am today without help of American people. But this is so unique uh, to America. You know, and I, no I noticed that people just do these good things and they don't think about it. They don't dwell. And I was always wondering why they just like they think this is just not a big deal. Now, when I live in America for almost 40 years, I see why. This is how America is. This is why America is that shiny beacon on the hill of freedom and, and of, of goodness. That because this is normal. This is normal in America. People don't pay attention to these good things. Because this is the way they were born, they were brought up. For them, it is transparent. It is normal. It is how the society is supposed to be. But in truth, it is not normal anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. People just don't know about it. For me, coming from outside and seeing these good, this, this goodness is, is, is uh, you know, it's, it stays close to my heart. Till today, and uh, I always, this is what I told myself, that I want to be like that. I want to be good American citizen. I want to be the best American citizen America can have. I want to be better citizen today than I was yesterday, and I will be better American citizen tomorrow than I am today. Then I go, one of my favorite parts, obviously there's some transitions. I, I know when I first came to the United States, I was nine, 
and uh, it took some some getting used to. The language barrier was oh God, yes. was an issue. I, I know uh, I was in third grade at the time, and but one of the things in your book that made me smile is because my parents were missionaries, and they spent a couple of years in Czechoslovakia before the, the revolution there. And ostensibly, they were teaching English as a second language, but they were also organizing churches. You know, they were meeting in secret down in basements and whatnot. And one of their students came to the United States to visit. And I'll never forget, we took him, we went to the grocery store, and he just stood there, and his jaw dropped, and he just stared at all the goods on the shelves. And, you know, he's kind of similar to your situation. He says, you know, in, in Prague, it, sometimes you couldn't get bread, much less the choice of 50 different types of bread that you could choose from. So, uh, again, folks, I encourage you to read the book. It's very inspirational. A lot of insights called The Pledge to America. It's written by Drago Jaron. We'll be back with more from Drago. We'll talk a little bit about your time in the SEALs team, Drago, when we come back. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Drago Jaron. He's a uh, native of Poland who uh, came to the United States. Drago, we were talking just about some of the great stories, a lot of them focusing on language difficulties and how sometimes you weren't quite getting the pronunciation right, and, and sometimes that led to some interesting situations. But I want to talk a little bit about your, your transition into the Navy SEALs. When you were working here in the United States, and then the, the first uh, Gulf War happened, you were inspired because you were already a patriot. And I find it interesting that so often it's been my experience that the strongest patriots are people who are not originally from the United States and have experienced other things and know how important it is to protect what we have and fight for it. And I'm paraphrasing Drago, but you said, look, I'm not a rich man. I can't create jobs, so I will join the military and fight for my new country. So you you went down and signed up, you know, filled out your, your selective service card, but it turns out that was not what you thought it was. And uh, <laughs> eventually you went down and joined the Army, but before that paperwork was processed, you had a chance to meet some Navy SEALs, and you decided, nah, that's for me. Yes, kind of. So, you know, how can you repay freedom? You can't. You can never repay freedom. So when the first Persian war broke out, I, by that time, I was already successful. I had my home. I had my job. I had everything that I could never earn in the lifetime in Poland. I had friends. I was surrounded by good Americans. So I, when the first Persian war broke out, I figured out that I, and I, I became American citizen at the same time. So I figured out that I need to do something for my country. I need to pay my freedom back. And the easiest, the best way for me in my situation was to join military. Well, I didn't know how to do it. But again, that was my moral obligation to support America, my country. And again, for me, the, the, I think the, the best way to do so was to fight in the war on behalf of America. So I decided to join military. At that time, I had no idea. I couldn't tell the difference between the Navy, Marines, Army, Coast Guard, um, Air Force. For me, it was just Army. So 
on post office, I noticed those cards, as like you mentioned earlier, selected service card. And I figured out that there is a war. I'm going to sign my name, send it to them, and, and I will go to war. So I filled it up, I sent it, and went to my apartment. By this time, I was roommate with other skydivers from Memphis, and I started packing myself. So there's like, where, where, are you moving out? I was like, where are you going, Drago? I was like, well, I'm going to war. As war, it's like, why would you go to war? There's, there's like, there is no war in America. There's wars there. But, but it's like, America is fighting war. I will support it. And I will come back. You know, after war, I come back and we'll be doing all kinds of cool stuff. And then, like, 30 days later, like, it, 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 I was expecting almost the second day. I fill it up, send it, and somebody will show up and say, okay, let's go to war. How <laughs> 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 naive I was. But then, anyway, so the, the response that I got was that I am way too old, and I am not obligated to fill this type of form. I didn't have to, but they said they appreciate it. It was like a nice letter. They thank you for, for filling it up. And then I realized that, yeah, that wasn't the contract. That was just a registration card. So with the advice of other friends, I went to the recruiting office. And then Army, of course, because I thought Army is everything. So I went to Army, and they started processing my paperwork. And it was almost completely done. Like you said, it happened that I met Navy SEALs. I was teaching skydiving in the West Tennessee Skydiving Center in Memphis. So, of course, they were doing some demonstrational jumps in Memphis. And, of course, they came to our drop zone. So I had a chance to meet them, talk to them. And they kind of switched my, uh, kind of enlightened me a little bit and uh, advised me to go to, and go to the Navy, take the paperwork, go to the Navy. And that's what I did. I went to Navy first. I asked them a lot of questions. And uh, they told me to just go to next door and grab my, all my paperwork. It was Army almost completed it uh, and, and bring it to them. To tell you, that was pretty awkward for me to do it because I became friends with these uh, Army guys. Mm -hmm. But, well, I, I decided to do it. So I, I brought the paperwork to uh, to the Navy. Well, and then, then they told me that I'm like five years past the age limit to join SEALs. But if I sign the paperwork up there, uh, with them, somebody, when I go to boot camp, they will make a seal out of me. That's <laughs> like, okay. But please remember that uh, seal, uh, Navy SEALs at the time, that was not my ultimate goal. I mean, that was nice if you can come, but I just wanted to support my country, whether as a SEAL or a parachute rigger or anything else that, it, that America needs. So I, I was not in despair. And, um, and, yeah, it happened that I got orders to SEAL training eventually after a lot, and I described in my book, The Pledge to America, all these pitfalls <laughs> with, my, with my English, with my not understanding some of the processes. Well, uh, and I laugh yeah. because sometimes, you know, your teammates, your fellow teammates are going off to sniper school where guess where Drago is going? Well, he's going back to an English 101 class. And I think that's why you were the perfect Navy SEAL Drago because there's countless examples in there. Some of them kind of funny about how you adapted and overcame. One one I love the most was when you were, you love sweets. You've got a sweet tooth and they wouldn't serve sweets after a certain period of time. So you marched in there and introduced yourself as a general and said, I want my darn cake and it better be ready. And next thing you know, here come all these sweets piling out. But that's, again, they have to read, yes. read the book to do that. I'll tell you that I will... 
I, I tried to be very creative when I proposed to my wife, but your proposal was probably the most unique I've ever heard of. It involved a MK-48 machine gun. Tell us that story real quick. <laughs> well, I was in the reach. Actually, I, 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 I was quite poor. So I asked my friends and my fellow seals, you know, what would be the best way to propose? How would you do it? You know, I hear these ideas go to uh, Puerto Rico or go to, like, exotic country or, like, awesome restaurant. Well, I didn't have the money for any of that. But I was thinking, how how could I do it? And and I, I figured out that I just take her on the range and take, make her shoot the guns. And uh, then in one of the guns... It happened, like you mentioned, the MK4, Mark 48, and on the tray, I attached on the little thread a ring, and on the bolt of the gun, the bottom, I wrote, like, marry me. So, and of course, that would never happen without help of my SEAL brothers. So they all set up the range because I took her where we trained SEALs. These guys set up all the guns, the ammo and everything. And uh, Rachel, my wife, she didn't know what's going on. She was just happy to be with me. But then I left her for like an hour when we were setting it up, make sure everything is safe. And uh, But no, she was not upset. I took her and from gun to gun. We lined up every gun in our almost inventory. And uh, actually, she was a really good shoot. So she was <laughs> shooting very well. And and she was going from gun to gun to gun. And the very last gun, the Mark 48, had uh, in the tray. The tray was very gently closed. And uh, so when she opened it, the ring popped out, and this this note laying on the bolt with big letters, Mary me, showed up. So I was already kneeling because I was afraid that when she, when she sees it or if she slammed the tray, she would break the diamond. Mm. So I was, like, ready to throw my hand in between the tray and the, and, and the belt of ammunition. <laughs> and, and she didn't. She actually picked it up. She cried a little bit, and, uh, and she said, yes, this is how I... Uh, proposed to her. Actually, I have it on the video, and I'm going to post it on my oh. website, and I have uh, images, too, from that ceremony, I would say. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. We've got just about uh, two minutes left. You know, your pledge to America is to, to be the best citizen that you can be, and, and I hope that our conversation today and your book inspires people to do so. What is your website? It's dragojiran, my name, dot com. Okay. .com. I just built it, so um, it's not quite finished yet, but everything is there pretty much the way it is going to be. So I'm just going to add some more videos. I'm going to uh, put some uh, pictures so to supplement the book. And, uh, yeah, so this is, this is there. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, and, and uh, welcome, a little late, welcome to America, and, and thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for what uh, you're going to inspire hopefully lots of other people to do Drago and I want to emphasize I was looking at your Twitter page and you also encourage people you know you to, to teach your children properly and I think your story is something that we should all share with all of our children to introduce them to um, how freedom can be taken away so quickly and uh, I thank you for doing that sir Thank you so much. It was an honor to be on your show. Thank you, Ben. Well, and I'm also going to start a campaign to get IHOP to give you free food for the rest of your life. So. <laughs> <laughs>
Now I can afford all the food. I still want to go there. I still I love IHOP and I next, still eat there. Next time I come to Virginia, I'll take you to IHOP. Drago, take care of yourself. Oh, thank you so much. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Another show in the books. You can find all these podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Until next time, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.